0: Really, when you're a developer, it's all about feedback loops. It's all about having like, the shortest amount of feedback. You don't want to have to wait for a deploy to find out you had a bug. You want to find that out on your local machine and to fix it before you deploy. And staging environments and fast branch deploys kind of help with this, but you really need an amazing local dev experience. In our industry, speed is everything. And you can't have two or three second cold starts. It's fine for an enterprise back office kind of app, but for a front end facing, user facing thing, you just can't have these kind of cold starts. Hey, this is
1: Brian, and you're listening to Jamstack Radio, a bi-weekly series where we discuss the Jamstack, a new way of building websites and apps that are fast, secure, and simple to work with. Jamstack Radio is brought to you by HeavyBit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, find us on Twitter at Jamstack Radio. Welcome to another installment of Jamstack Radio. On the line I've got Brian LaRue. Brian, do you want to introduce yourself and tell us why you're here?
0: Yeah, uh, sure. I'm a, I'm a webby web developer. I've been doing this web thing for quite a long time, and I'm a big fan of the empowerment of what the what the web has enabled, and I've always kind of hung around the, the front-end web community, even before there was one. And uh, I think the reason I'm here is to talk a little bit about the Jamstack, but also uh, my company, Begin. And how we kind of intersect with that world and what that whole world means. And I guess it's worth mentioning in my former life, I worked on a project which is renowned for being one of the most loathed projects on Stack Overflow, um, PhoneGap and or Cordova. So for the listeners, I apologize if it gave you trouble. It wasn't my fault. It was Adobe's. And uh, if it was great for you, then that's awesome. It was because of me. And you, you worked at that as an Adobe employee at the time? Yeah, I did. I uh, well, I started working on that project with a sort of a group of misfits in Vancouver in two thousand and seven, two thousand eight timeframe. And um, PhoneGap is like a lot of webby open source projects. It was immediately a huge success right away. I'm joking. So we started working on it in 2007, and we kept working on it until about 2011 when we got acquired by uh, Adobe. Oh, wow. There was a a long period of questionable uh, opportunity cost spent working on that one, but it it grew consistently the entire time. And then by the time we got acquired, it was a runaway um, train. I think we ended up becoming responsible for about 20% of the App Store. And um, today, I, I think the torch has been taken up by Ionic. yeah. That crew with the capacitor js stuff and and they're still growing like gangbusters. So there's definitely something to this internet thing. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. it's always growing. Yeah. I mean, e- even
1: with the mobile space, like we've got ionic and then React Native and yep. Expo and all these other what was the one the one made made in Dart uh, flutter.
0: Oh, Flutter. Flutter's cool, yeah. Yeah, I like that one, and I, I don't mind Dart. Dart had such a strange start that I think it it sort of alienated itself with the JavaScript developers, but luckily time has gone on long enough that it looks a lot like TypeScript and no one knows. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's how it feels, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's you know it's, it's typed. It's it's a it's a beautifully designed language. It came from a lot of the best minds at Google. So it's it's funny that it found its niche over in mobile, though. It wasn't something I had expected for it to happen. But
1: yeah, yeah. Cool. I mean, it definitely came out of left field for sure. But speaking of left field, so we originally met at Reactathon three years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I was emceeing. And then you were one of the speakers, and you gave an uh, amazing talk. I think you were talking about Arc at the time. I'm not even sure if Begin was around at that time.
0: Probably not, yeah. Yeah, so Architect is the open core, as it were, of uh, Begin. And, and Architect is a, a framework for building serverless apps. And there's a bunch of these out there. So the first kind of question usually is, what, why would you have another framework for serverless apps? You know, we got Terraform, we have serverless.com. And the reason is because we needed to build something that was going to have uh, really good latency characteristics for building a bot. The first version of Begin was actually a Slack bot, and um, you can't have a bot that's got a cold start. And unfortunately, the early um, versions of of serverless frameworks out there did what everyone does, and people still do this today. Um, You'll take a function and you'll put an express web server in it. (laughs) And and that works. And it's totally okay to do that. Um, I don't want to dissuade anyone from trying it out because it's fun to do. But as your app grows, uh, your function will get larger because you're going to add more code to it. And as you're adding more and more code to it, it's going to cold start slower. And so you want to break that up into a bunch of small functions. And most of these frameworks don't really guide you down this road. And so this is one reason that Architect's a lot different from other uh, projects out there and that we guide you into a path where you're splitting up your app into constituent single responsibility principle functions that are very small. And first sort of inclination of this is, oh, no, now you're going to have lots of functions. Your Rails app has lots of functions. It just doesn't have any isolation between them. So this is the only major difference that you're isolating these things into their own little containers. And then when they go to cold start, uh, there's no penalty uh, because they're loading less stuff. So, yeah, we kicked off Architect. I think we open sourced it in 2017, and it's been under very active development ever since. We're now doing something like an average of four or five pull requests from external contributors a week. Uh, we had 80,000 downloads last year, and uh, as a measure of the year prior in 2019, uh, we had 10,000 downloads. So there's a real acceleration towards serverless, and uh, people are looking for ways to do it that are frictionless and that have uh, really good latency characteristics, and that's kind of our sweet spot.
1: Okay, and, and speaking of sweet spot, so tell us about Begin and what that is.
0: Yeah, so this is always fun. When you've got an open core, there's like a what's the relationship between the open thing and the, the commercial thing. So Begin.com deploys architect applications, and the commercial entity uh, that is Begin.com is set up to make this whole thing very frictionless. One of the main things I learned with Architect uh, is front-end developers are um, rightfully terrified of Amazon. They look at that AWS console and they think, whoa, (laughs) what am I looking at? Where is my app? And how do I make sure that it doesn't blow my credit card out of the water? And so that intimidation level is something that we sort of strive to solve with Begin. We sign in with GitHub you click one button, you'll have an app deployed on Amazon in roughly 30 seconds or less. And uh, that's not an exaggeration, Uh, we time this. Um, Much of our deploys usually net in around seven to 13 seconds. My goal is to get that to zero seconds. And this is not because Begin is super special, this is all downstream of the scale and capability of AWS. But all that complexity of getting started is, is kind of locked away from a lot of developers. So Begin just makes this frictionless and lets you get started really quick
1: okay and, and what is the um, the process of getting started I mean I've done this myself but for the sake of the listener like how would they sort of begin with begin
0: yeah and you know this is something I think we're gonna always have to make easier right now um, you sign in with github and you can select a starter template app and you, you're off to the races we're looking at making this a more local development workflow uh, friendly situation you can use all of our stuff locally today um, but to get started it's very similar to Heroku. You sign in with your GitHub, and then you generate a repo, or you'll hook us up to an existing repo, and then we just start deploying every time you commit after that. So it's fairly frictionless, but my ideal would be it's completely frictionless, so like there is no sign-in step, and there's just magic, and you deploy, and we'll get there. It's a, Interesting challenge because you wanna have the CI C D and you wanna have the GitHub integration and you wanna, you know, you wanna put people where they're comfortable and they're working. But really when you're a developer, it's all about feedback loops. It's all about having like the shortest amount of feedback until like you, you don't wanna to have to wait for a deploy to find out you had a bug. You wanna find that out on your local machine and the fix it before you deploy. And staging environments and fast like branch deploys kind of help with this, but you really need an amazing kick-ass like local dev experience. And that's that's another thing that we get out of architect and, and the open core and something that we're striving to make easier with begin. But right now, pretty much, uh, if you've got a GitHub account, you should be thirty seconds away from deploying on Amazon.
1: Okay, excellent. And I love the I love the seconds in deploying and that your your goal to get down to zero. Yeah, it's one thing that uh, when I worked at Netlify that I sort of took pride in that I was able to stand on stage or write a blog post. And from the moment you figure out Netlify existed. Like you're only about 30 seconds from having a site actually in production. So I love that strategy for adoption. And it sounds like you're loving that too as well.
0: Yeah. And I mean Netlify really they made this mainstream in so many ways. And like we look up to what they've done and a lot of a lot of the work they've done, especially for developer experience. It's great. And we just want to bring that to the whole stack and have that for like everything that you do with with AWS infra in particular. I can remember when GitHub first launched Jekyll support, (laughs) and GitHub Pages. And this was a big deal back then, because back then, if I wanted to stand something up on the internet, it was a real rigmarole. You had to find your DNS, you had to likely get signed up at Heroku, but maybe it was Linode. You had to set these servers up and reverse proxies, and Tom Preston Werner and crew there were just like, no, you're deploying a static site, just put that up there and let that be the thing. And then Netlify really took that and ran with it. Yeah. And the question I have now for the Jamstack, and this is more of like a heady kind of philosophical question: we know that deploying static assets is faster, and we know that like you know having it pre-rendered means you don't have to do any work on your server to get that stuff over, and that that's great and it works. Um, there's obviously like trade-offs along the way. Like you have to wait for build steps. If you have a huge app, it's going to take longer to get it up there, and you'll be waiting for it uh, to, to deploy. But Generally, these trade-offs are pretty good and they're fairly manageable if you use a service like Netlify. At some point, serverless compute, in particular Lambda, is going to drop to zero cold start. And it's not a if, it's a when. And right now our cold starts are around 50 milliseconds, five zero milliseconds, so not something humans can perceive. The reason we did all this static asset Jekyll stuff was because we didn't want to wait for servers to do things. We don't have to wait for servers anymore. So... The challenge for the future of the Jamstack will be, do we need to pre-render? Should this be static? And I think we're starting to see people ask that question in the framework world. You've got Redwood, you've got Remix, you've got Next, you've got uh, Blitz. I don't know. There's another one every week. Uh, SvelteKit is the yeah. other one that's like kind of seeing this. And they're hybridizing. They're, they're moving beyond just static. And they're starting to use a dynamic, trusted process for server render as well. And um, I think this is where it all evolves, but I'm not sure. And uh, yeah, it's a good time because we're at the bleeding edge, and it's uh, wild west.
1: Yeah, and you even see uh, folks like Gatsby who help champion things like the Jamstack and the statically rendered assets and build on time to building. But even they're experimenting with sort of um, you can build portions of the app. So if you need something statically built, like your landing page, like that gets built. But also experimenting, and also I think Next is kind of they've sort of led the charge in the Jamstack world of having that sort of hybrid. Model. Totally. Uh, I think Redwood and Blitz are sort of really running with it and like sort of pushing it to the boundaries of what it means. I've seen the evolution of the Jamstack, like even the home, like Jamstack.org, it's updated. Like it's more than static. It is. You might have something that's dynamically rendered. So yeah, it's um some pretty good insight.
0: Well, then there's nothing in that manifesto that said it had to be pre rendered. No. <laughs> It just happened to be a feature. And Netlify yeah. gets us. They added functions. And and so sort of from my perspective is what happens when the function model is is predominant and there's no you know performance penalty and they just run instantly and they go away instantly and statelessly. And and what does that enable and and how do we how do we take best advantage of that? I mean these things are they are so cheap. So like, one million Lambda invocations is free. The, the next million is is something like ten cents. So you could be, you know, pumping literal millions of requests to your Lambda function and still not pay a buck. And um, that's a whole different ballgame in every way possible. So we can now, yeah, sure, you can serve a static site. You can do a workaround for your dynamic routes. <laughs> you could just put your whole site in one Lambda function and probably serve it just fine and have extremely cost-effective trade-offs for that. And that's a a wildly radical idea right now, but I I expect over the years that will look pretty boring. (laughs) It's begin only AWS only? Yeah, we are. And that was very deliberate. So you know my PhoneGap history. And like I I did that whole thing. And like when I started working on PhoneGap, it was all about Blackberries. <laughs> and um, you know, iPhone was obviously gonna be this this big thing. We all knew it. Um, but in the earliest moments there was still a ton of momentum and traction for BlackBerry. There was this new weird operating system called Android that looked promising. If you were in Europe and you didn't have a Nokia phone, you were a weirdo. So like there was a whole set of operating systems for that. And so in PhoneGap's world, I pursued it all, all simultaneously. And I've seen other founders doing this with the cloud as well. It was a mistake. We got lucky. I put a lot of resources on BlackBerry for a lot of years, and I didn't have to do that. I could have probably focused a ton of our attention just on iOS and Android, and it would have been uh, just as successful, if not more successful, today. So I'm not going to make that mistake with cloud. I know who iOS is. I don't know who BlackBerry is. I'm just waiting to see what happens. And um, these clouds will market themselves as capability equivalent, and they are not. So in particular, I'm very excited about Azure. I think Azure has a shot at number two. I don't think it is number two. I think that is to be determined. They've got distribution with GitHub, and they've got distribution with NPM. They've got Visual Studio Code. So they have a lot going for them. But on the ground uh, for their infrastructure as code, solution. They've got a thing called ARM, Azure Resource Manager. It isn't anywhere near where CloudFormation is, so I can't create the same kind of deterministic fast builds that I can on AWS. And that's kind of table stakes for me. I expect them to catch up eventually. And the other aspect to this is that the way the function execution model works is different across clouds. Amazon has a thing called Firecracker which is as cool as it sounds, it's like this mini virtual machine orchestrator thing. You don't have to worry about it. The TLDR of it is it's a stripped-down operating system, and it's really, really fast. All the other clouds use a, a variant of Kubernetes or something like it to boot their functions primitives, which is a nice way of saying they're slower. And <laughs> in our industry, speed is everything. Yeah. And you know, you can't have two- or three-second cold starts. It's fine for an enterprise back-office kind of app, but for a front-end-facing, user-facing thing, you just can't have these kind of cold starts. So I'm anticipating eventually Azure fixes these problems and I'll look at being portable to them. But in the meantime, Alibaba might come up and you know eat their lunch. Yeah, that's true. And instead of trying to like spray and pray and do all these clouds, I'd rather just be amazing on Amazon because I know they're going to be around a long time. Yeah,
1: and the thing that I, I bank on Tools like uh, Begin and all these other interfaces between the cloud for myself is that I don't want to learn AWS console. Like, I've learned it like probably five times since I started developing. And uh, every time I go back a year later, I'm like, oh, I can probably figure this out. Like, I had to do some transcriptions and they have a great transcription service, uh, AWS Transcribe or something. So, if I want to take this podcast, transcribe it, it's like just go directly to the metal and uh, get that stuff transcribed. But it's a horrible interface.
0: It's unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah. It, and, and they change it too. I have a panic attack like once every few weeks when they change that interface because I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> where did everything go? Yeah. <laughs> How do I find it again?
1: And that's <laughs> what I love about like if, if you take, you mentioned Arc or Begin, I, I log into my GitHub, like stuff works. All I want to do is just ship my code. I don't want to spend like a full week watching conference talks to make sure I'm up to speed.
0: Yeah, and that's sort of the theory. I think, you know, there's always going to be a need for things to move to a higher level. And Amazon's such an interesting company. They're not designed for a vertically integrated experience. They are very designed around like people say, oh, two pizza teams and like that's a good thing. And, and it is a good thing, but it, it's interesting to see when that is applied at scale what happens. Like they really do that. And so all of these products are these little fiefdom teams that are independently organized around basically the principles of of AWS's infrastructure, which is that things have an interface, things have an SDK, things log, and then otherwise uh, they might have cloud formation support and they might have full console support, but otherwise they just ship as fast as they can. And in some cases, they're even teams competing with each other, Products within AWS that are very similar to each other. So it's hard to decrypt what's going on. And people ask, like, well, why are they doing that? Well, this is a land grab. So the cloud is as big as any paradigm shift ever has been. And they're trying to get as much of that land as they can. So they're going wide right now instead of going super deep on a Prescriptive, sort of like here's how you're supposed to build your app, and here's where you're going to put your data. They're like, nah. Here's five databases, and we have five more coming out next week. <laughs> and, yeah. You know, use the one that makes sense for you. And I imagine in the longer scope of time, Amazon's going to start addressing this. We see this with other companies in other sectors in the past, where they go wide and they'll go deep later. I think that's what's going on, but cloud is very competitive. There's Azure, Alibaba, GCP, AWS. They're competing right now largely on these capabilities. So they're going to just keep adding more and more and get more and more complicated, which is great because then providers like us can say, okay, Amazon's never going to tell you to not use EC2. They're never going to say it. I'm going to say it right now. If you have no use case for EC2 at this point, there is a very low probability you need to boot a VM. But you probably need to talk to Node. And if you need to do that, then a really great way of doing it is Lambda. And if you need to do that really quickly, then Begin's a good solution for you.
1: Excellent. Yeah, that's a, quite the concise pitch too as well. And like in my mind, like if I can bump up my Simver version and get access to the new Amazon stuff through Begin, like that's the the world I want to live in.
0: Yeah, you you want their superpowers. You just don't want the the origin story that it takes to get those superpowers. <laughs> it's like a horrible comic book villain moment where you gotta like succumb to the console.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it's it's funny because I remember like roughly three years ago, I was spending a lot of time learning Docker and Kubernetes and thinking that you know I have to go learn how the cloud works. But now I'm at the point where I'm so far abstracted away from it. Like I'm not buying Kubernetes books. Like I'll I'll go to KubeCon to find out the new providers. But I don't really need to know Kubernetes anymore. I am banking on infra people to keep that stuff up and running.
0: Yeah, and it might not even be Kubernetes in the future, for all we know. Yeah, like, there's just so many different ways to go about orchestrating these like compute workloads that span past one computer. Basically, as soon as you get to two computers, you're now scaling, and as soon as you're scaling a distributed system, you've got all kinds of new problems. And this is why I think this was the end game for the cloud the whole time because why would I be thinking about you know my IP address ranges if I'm just returning a string for a web page? It's a little bit over the top. I shouldn't need to have to like deal with my ingress and egress IP rules. It's a web page. <laughs> just let me serve the thing. I think our industry goes through these like vacillations of complexity and configurability, and then um, usually we reject it outright and move over to simpler, easier, more deterministic, higher level things like. I remember when Java was all the rage and and then this upstart Ruby on Rails had the audacity to ask what about developer happiness? Yeah. And so many people were mad. It's like people were literally mad. They were like this Ruby thing, it'll never scale. We don't want that developers. Who cares if they're happy? And you know, we know how that story worked out. Uh, the developers became very happy, and they deployed tons of Rails stuff, and Ruby became a de facto for many of the dot-coms that we use every day today. Yeah, And Node was kind of an extension of that, and now the pendulum's actually swinging back, I think, towards more rigor and more configuration and more formality. Like we see TypeScript is a good example of that, yeah. and it's rise.
1: Yeah, and we're also seeing the, the pendulum... Like, even things like like Rust now having its sort of day in the sunlight. Yeah. I mean, we have an M1 chip now, thanks to Apple's, so and everybody's like, ooh, M1. Yeah. But only just this week, we can now do homebrew on M1 chips. But anyway, that's besides the point.
0: <laughs> no, I, I, I was waiting for that too. <laughs> like, my hand's been hovering over the buy button for like two months now. I'm just dying to get that. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, thanks to to GitHub, I get a new laptop in two weeks because I hit my three year anniversary. So it uh, could not be a better timing uh, to sort of figure out how this M1 works.
0: Are you going to go with an error or are you going to wait for the. Because I heard they're they're gonna do a pro. Yeah, this is the rumor, anyways. Probably the day you order an Air, they'll come out with this amazing Pro. (laughs) That's what's gonna happen.
1: Yeah, I'm actually trying to hold out until the beefier version comes out. Hopefully, summerish time. Yeah, because like nothing's dying right now as far as machines. With that being said, my wife's laptop literally just died. Her six year old Touch Bar Mac just completely. (sighs)
0: I have never been mad about a computer and that one did it. That one was like yep. They removed my MagSafe, which just made me so livid, but I was like, okay, fine. And then they ruined the keyboard, the like main interface. This is Apple.
1: Yeah. The the amount of times that computer has fallen off the bed because of no, the lack of MagSafe and like this a toddler running through the <laughs> run, running through the bedroom and knocking the uh, the plug out the wall. Oh my God.
0: <laughs> I mean See, that's a different kind of stress.
1: Yeah, the reverse of innovation. But speaking of it, I, I want to ask real quick about uh, Begin dot com pricing. Like, how do you make money? Yeah. Like, I, I think everybody's sort of like interested, but want to know like, is this going to sustain itself? <laughs>
0: Yeah, for sure. And so the first thing to know is that we deploy architect apps. So anything that we deploy is deployed with CloudFormation, so you can leave at any time. So if you build an app with us and we aren't meeting your needs, then you can deploy directly to Amazon uh, without getting in the way. So there shouldn't be any kind of fear of being locked into us and the, the startup runs out of funding or disappears. We do charge. We have customers paying us real money and everything, and it's currently gated behind a wait list. So I guess I'm comfortable saying this we have about a thousand apps per Amazon org account and we have about a thousand of those and it's fine they can't access each other they're all locked down with I am but what can happen is you can get a noisy neighbor so you could have someone on the same Amazon account as you pumping a bunch of traffic and uh, you know you could get throttled as a result I've been calling this one internally the West Boss effect, because Wes was on our free tier and he was throttling it a few times, which is great. That's what it's for, and that's why we want people out there kicking tires. But um, if you manage to trigger the West Boss alarms, then we'll kindly invite you to join our, our paid tier where we'll give you your own Amazon account, uh, totally set up for you and totally isolated for you. We're charging 25 bucks a month for that. Okay. And then we have a wait list for this right now. We have a Pro Plus tier coming where we'll deploy to anyone's Amazon account. Uh, you just have to give us the creds and we'll run begin on your AWS for you. So it's kind of like a a cloud modern version of on premises. I'm trying to find like a way to like describe this. Effectively, the, the story is you've got existing resources. In a database or uh, something like that, you have a reason to be on your own Amazon account, and you need to talk to that existing database or those existing resources. So that's that's the use case, and um, we'll deploy into your VPC if if that's what you need us to do. So it's like on-premises, but it's like it's more like on your cloud, I guess. I don't know <laughs> if we can ask the viewers to come yeah. up with a better a better term for this. And um, yeah, this is all in the roadmap. I I hope to have us fully GA'd uh, before the summer this year. So it's only reason that we've got it behind a beta right now is that we've been trying to figure out how to scale it uh, with the team size that we have. And I think we figured that out at this point. It's pretty self serve and fairly on demand. And uh, we're going to just completely automate that all away.
1: Excellent. And how big is the, the team currently at Begin?
0: We are five, so we are quite small. It's so myself, uh, my co-founders, Ryan Block and Christopher Joseph. And then uh, we've got a couple of amazing devs, Paul Chin Jr. and uh, Sean Jose uh, have been keeping the support deluge down to a reasonable amount <laughs> of levels and helping us build out uh, example apps. and Excellent. Actually, Sean's Sean's been on a, a mission lately for us. So I really appreciate it. He's been working on it. Um, Trying to figure out how to write the documentation for every possible DNS registrar, it's because we, when we initially launched, we were like, yeah, it's great, just use this with Route 53, and like nobody wants <laughs> to use Route 53. Now, I
1: mean, unless you're going to build a service for it to interface between it, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I understand. And so, like, we, and every one of these registrars is totally different. So, like, yep. we, we did some instructions for Cloudflare and we did some for Namecheap and DNS Simple and 1.com. And, like, the list is just going on and on and on. And so, we're.
1: Yeah, it, it's almost too big.
0: Yeah, I don't have a great answer for this because I, I want to automate it, but these things are, are very different from each other and they all use the same terms, but in different ways. And it's just an ugly, sticky documentation project.
1: Yeah, it, it was actually one of my first uh, features at Netlify. I was building a. Actually, it was my interview.
0: Oh yeah, basically
1: <laughs> uh, project was building the DNS dashboard. So it was like my first time writing Go because I had to talk to their their services, and then I built a React app uh, to sort of do all the, the handling of the form. That's a
0: bit deep end.
1: <laughs> it, it was project. <laughs> it, it, it really was, um, but they have had a really good internal API. I was also uh, employee three, so they like there was no real structure to the interview process. So, so like they just had people build features, that's great, and contract them, and then uh, if it worked out, it worked out. If it didn't, you know, at least you got to walk away with a little bit of money. Yeah, but it was a great experience, and yeah, but I also that was painful trying to because I don't, I use my the same DNS I've been using since like I started buying domains in college. Yeah, which is hover.com, By the way, they don't sponsor this podcast, but we'll just throw them out there and. Uh, <laughs> But yeah I just I knew how to use that one and, and uh, that's how I tested it. And then I found out really quickly people would just throw out like random DNS and be like, "Hey it doesn't work with this one." And I was like,
0: okay, yeah, it's so weird. there's so many of these providers they're all different. they all use similar terms, and um, programming against it's very hard and even programming against Amazon's, which is quite you know stable at this point, is pretty hard like DNS is very you know, throw the dart. Wait twenty minutes, and <laughs> see if it worked, <laughs> and then like ask a friend on the phone. Hey, yeah, can you load this page? <laughs> well, that's what
1: I like about um. So Netlify with Netlify functions, one of the early prototypes for, and I know this because I was there, of their DNS panel. They built a Netlify function to actually ping and let you know when your DNS is ready.
0: Oh, see, that's a perfect use for functions. Yeah, I love that. This is the fun thing about the whole Lambda thing. Is that you can give yourself permission to write an app that just does one little thing. Yeah. And you can deploy that one little thing and not worry about it and it'll scale independently. And yeah, that's cool. It's a good use case. It
1: was a uh, the CEO of Netlify it was his weekend project. He like <laughs> I like, I think on a Thursday, something like in the middle of the week, he's like, I have this idea for a feature. And then Monday he's like, Okay, can you put this in the, the UI? And I was like, okay.
0: Yeah, that's awesome.
1: Yeah. But speaking of which, I wanted to ask one more question. Like this has probably been the most organic conversation that answered all my questions that I had prepared. <laughs> I'm looking at the questions, we answered pretty much everything I had prepared. Oh. Except yeah. how did you get begin.com?
0: Oh, right, right. Yeah, yeah. This is a fun question. And this is a good one maybe for the users. This was something I had to learn myself when we got this startup going so my co-founder ryan gets full credit for running this process and and maybe people can get some value out of this because i think a lot of people will assume you can't get a cool five letter.com domain name but anybody can do it and uh, it it isn't all that hard but you you've got to come in with some basic rules so the first rule is you don't know what the domain will be <laughs> until you until you find it. So you got to let go and put that intention on the universe and be sort of yogic about it and be like, okay, I want to get a .com, but I, I'm not going to be attached to what the actual letters of the .com are. You then have to narrow your field and, and understand, like, you know, there's a lot of words out there. What is the word that you want for your, your .com and how many letters does it have? Because these things do cost more depending on how many letters there are. The next thing you need to do after you've got, you know, your thing, wh- what we said was we wanted to have a positive verb that was five letters or less. So we went to the dictionary and we, we got all those words. And I think there was thousands of them. And um, we hired a domain broker to help us go through that list and start finding these people and contacting them and see if uh, they wanted to do a deal that was within our budget. And um, we got to letter B before we found someone. Now, the cost of these can be expensive. They can go into six figures for sure. Um, But you can do like four or five figure deal for a dot-com that's really good. And that's still a lot of money, but I I will argue that it is worth it for your credibility and for the brand. And it also shows you got some hustle and you can find that thing. So that gets you a a way in the door when you're talking to investors later, they're going to know you're really serious about this thing. The person we found for Begin was actually not as price sensitive as they wanted to be involved in a startup. And so we were able to negotiate a deal on equity. And uh, I think another startup out there listening to this right now can take these lessons and, and hopefully use them. You just got to not care what your name's going to be until you find it. <laughs> That's really the the trick. And I think this process, by the way, also took us, like I want to say, like six months. Okay. So it was not... Not very easy. We had to work on like a code name and stealth mode for a while before we actually got the thing like <laughs> buttoned up. And even at first, I was like, I don't know, is this good? because we'd looked at so many domains I wasn't even sure, and then you, know, yeah, it's good. It's five letters and it's positive and It starts in the early in the alphabet <laughs> by accident.
1: yeah, so I, I asked a question because I thought it was way more intentional than that because it began it feels like it fits the product so well.
0: Well, you know, I mean, I'm not a fatalist, but there is. You know some serendipity and all this, and it did it did work out. It does suit it very well. And, you know, I, I guess you could grab any five letter positive verb and <laughs> work your way down a list and find something, or just add LaFi at the end, or <laughs> whatever, and uh, <laughs> you'll be able to make that work. I've been buying vanity domains like they're going out of style ever since we started getting these weird TLDs. I've got like "coding dot pizza" or something, and like, <laughs> you know. Okay. Well. I will
1: have to admit, I do have opensauce.pizza. So, oh, see, that's a good uh, one. Which is my side project. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah. It was a completely, uh, and I've talked about it on the podcast quite a few times, so folks, opensauce.pizza, check it out. Uh, but it was basically a side project to learn the GraphQL API GitHub. And I was just looking, like I think the the pizza TLD came out, <laughs> and I was like, oh, I need to think of something to go with pizza. <laughs>
0: That's exactly what I did too. I was like, I don't have a project, but this TLD is too good to not use. It's so funny.
1: Yeah, I, I have quite a few. I mean, a lot of them have my name in it B Dougie Dev and B Dougie Live. And, but uh, I do have a couple other ones, like Embredable, that
0: club. <laughs> but, and then every year, you probably like me, you get the renewal notice and you're like, oh, this is a waste of money. And then you pay it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I actually
1: did drop breadable. If anybody wants club, I just dropped it because I'm just like, a couple years into this, I'm like, there's nothing happening here.
0: Yeah. There needs to be a developer tool that lets us exercise the feeling of buying a domain spontaneously, but not actually spending the money on it. Maybe like an escrow or something.
1: I need AI to basically, just based on the domain name, generate a website. <laughs> And I'll just stand up there with a bunch of stock photos, and then I'll feel good about myself because there's something pointed at it.
0: You'll probably close a seed round in like ten minutes. Okay, <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> I've got some I've got some
1: work to do. So uh, let's go ahead and wrap up this podcast. And uh, <laughs> I appreciate you, you chatting about Begin. Um, I love the story. I love the product. I didn't even mention I, I leverage it for one of my Twitch bots. Oh, it's, nice. it's called Git Twitch. Brad. Yeah, yeah, Git Twitch is basically connecting Git. GitHub and Twitch together, so that way, I've whenever you start a repo while I'm live on Twitch, something
0: happens. Dope! That's a great use case. That's awesome. I love it.
1: Yeah, huh. it's not in production right now because um, I had to clean up a bunch of the code, and uh, so I cleaned it up. So I need to deploy it again. Actually. It might be deploying. I haven't even logged in to begin since the first time I clicked it, so it could be still running. <laughs> <laughs> any any yeah. commits
0: would have deployed.
1: Yeah, it turns out like I'm on the I'm on a club with a thousand other folks. So. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But moving on, uh, let's actually move in the jam picks. Uh, these are folks. These are hmm. projects that we're jamming on. It doesn't have to be. Projects, if that'd be code related, it could be food related. We've definitely had the gambit of all different types of recommendations. But as you're thinking, I'm going to mention my picks because it got mentioned in passing. So just last week, me and Anthony Campolo, Anthony was on this podcast quite a few episodes ago, and he talked about Redwood JS. And he basically, as a bootcamp student, was like doing DevRel for Redwood on his spare time for fun. Uh, and then like wrote a bunch of tutorials and docs and stuff like that for them as a bootcamp student. Anyway, he just got his new job and did not even graduate the bootcamp. I'm not sure how that works, but he's working full time now. Yeah, that's great. But he basically walked me through how to build a Redwood site. Uh, so I mentioned open source.pizza. I'm actually working on this sort of recommendation engine for contributions to projects. Think of like Yelp, but for open source, which is like I just figured out the pitch on Twitch, which I did not mean to wrap, but uh, I just did. <laughs> but we built this, we built the site in like about a 30 minutes on stream live in front of people. Uh, I went back and did another live stream wow. and I connected a database, which probably should have only took five minutes, but it took me a little longer as I was learning Postgres and error-driven development. But I'm using another Episode that we had was Superbase. Superbase was actually they're in their beta right now uh, and finished YC. Like they started 2020, beginning of 2020, the founders hung out in Singapore, and then COVID hit, so they just basically did their entire YC batch in Singapore the entire time remotely. That's great, which is an amazing story. <laughs> Hats off to them. They raised a, a seed round after YC. Yeah, so I connect to Superbase. I'm loving the interaction, authentication stuff like that. So if you want to look. Talk about code names. It's actually in my org, it's open source slash flavor flav. That's the the current code name because I haven't thought of a name yet and I had to think of it on the fly. Um, so flavor flav is the uh, is the repo.
0: Man, don't change that. That's good. <laughs> yeah, I might
1: even, you know, check out this whole brokerage thing. Yeah. Well, I need to actually do the AI thing first. I'll get funded on that first. I think that's gonna be a billion dollar uh, idea. Oh, you um, but yeah, I I'm loving that that stack. And you'd also ask off stream about Redwood and yeah, what they like. Tom Preston-Werner he actually started HammerJS and then it was like code name. Eventually they renamed it to Redwood. Uh, it's basically Rails, but in Node and JavaScript and React. Love it. Yeah, it's a beautiful merriment of all these sort of things that I learned my entire career, with all scaffolding, which is what I love. Thanks to like Prisma and all this other stuff.
0: React community so badly needs to have some some strong opinionated. Yeah, you know, help, and and it's there's nothing wrong with that, and I think it's it's great to see that there's more of this happening now, and we're getting a little bit farther along the conventions versus the configurations. The somebody else should write that Webpack config. Uh, ideally, no one should have to write a Webpack config, but
1: yeah, going back like the what we just had a whole conversation about like I learned Webpack, and I'm actually I'm, I spent way too much time getting very good at it, and I haven't touched a Webpack config in like probably. A year and a half, like it, stuff. This works. All these new tools, Next.js, and everything like that. It just you start a project and you just sort of set it and, and forget it, sort of.
0: Yeah, and that's really how it should be, especially for a module system. I mean, come on, JavaScript. Everybody's had modules for so long, and and in true JavaScript fashion, we now have like three of them. <laughs> <So it's> like, <laughs> Excellent. <laughs>
1: yeah, I did have one more pick. Which I recently picked up a copper pan, which I don't know if this is like a U.S. thing or something, but it's like the um, late night television infomercial type skillets, where like it's nonstick but it's not Teflon based. My in laws had one like a couple of years ago, and I loved it. But I've been hardcore stainless steel, like I like use what's in the kitchen, like in actual kitchens, like restaurants. So I've always been like really into cooking and using proper equipment. But this copper pan, uh, fourteen dollars at a Walmart near you. It's actually pretty legit. Really, I'm actually really loving it.
0: Yeah, with like better heat distribution. Yeah,
1: or? whatever. Yeah, something like that. I don't. Honestly, I didn't really watch the whole infomercial, but um, it's like as seen on TV. <laughs> but yeah, it, nothing sticks. I I made like a general sow type chicken in there, uh, sauce and all. It just slides right out the side the pan. So I'm like, Ugh. I don't know. I, I feel like I'm cheating a little bit, but I'm also really loving cooking with it. So copper it sounds like the worst thing you could do but i'm sold
0: yeah i've never tried that i need to try that now my whole like covid adventure has culminated in me being able to now properly scramble eggs in a cast iron pan which took roughly a year to get right <laughs> it's
1: uh, low and slow that's how you cook eggs it is uh, and true. i'm a big cast iron fan as well i don't know i just do a lot of i've done a lot of cooking this year like no joke every meal
0: yeah us too it's um i love the cookie i hate the dishes though i gotta say yeah i'm, I'm over it <laughs> i'm ready to go eat out again so is it my turn do i get to do a pick yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: if you got any picks hook us up
0: yeah so uh i've been loving and the audience has probably heard this a billion times already but um i'm gonna be billion and one um i've been loving deno uh the last few months well I guess I kind of got on a little bit early to the deno train but I was early to the node thing too and it is becoming just a joy to work with so deno for the people that don't know is a it, first of all it might be pronounced Dino um, <laughs> it's a uh, it's a JavaScript runtime it's a play on the word node uh, it's from the original creators of node and it's kind of a it's kind of a do-over. I'm sure they wouldn't like me characterizing it that way, but there's a lot of stuff that Node has that it can't get rid of because it would break millions of people's apps. And so Deno is kind of asking the question, well, what if we got to start fresh? What would this look like? And it looks fresh, and it's very fast, and it's got just so many nice little features built in that you don't have to think about as much as you normally would. So it comes with built-in testing, built-in linting, built-in formatting, just added a command in Deno uh, 1.7 that is blowing my mind, where you can compile your app into a binary for any platform, and it'll run just like it was compiled with like a C++ or Rust or whatever. So you get to you get to package things the way that more compiled languages would. Other thing I'm loving is it comes with built-in TypeScript support, so you can write TypeScript, but you don't have to compile it. It does all that for you. So you just get this sort of natural JavaScript-y JavaScripty. Rigorous runtime that's very portable and has everything built in. So if you haven't checked out Deno and you're a front end dev, I highly recommend it. I think you'll have a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, definitely. So I mentioned live streaming. That's something I picked up this year. I actually did a little comparison test between Node, Deno, and then Miles Borens and a couple other Node folks created JS Time. Oh yeah. Uh, JS Time is like definitely not. Pro- saw that. Yeah, it's not production ready, and there's a lot of missing features, but. Just doing like side by side comparison of, I forgot what my test was. It was some trivial node thing. Um, actually, I think I did set timeout. I might have to set timeout for like two milliseconds and then looked at to see how long it took to respond. And like with node, it took like probably like four seconds to respond, like probably longer than that. But then with like deno, it was like take away the set timeout and it was like 25 milliseconds, which is like kind of insane.
0: Yeah. Um, the cold start's fantastic, and this is long term, especially for the serverless community. This is going to be a very big deal, and Node probably can't get faster at this point. Yeah. So, Node's probably hit its local maximum, whereas Deno's uh, already started from a faster place, and they've got some structural advantages, and they don't have to uh, deal with the baggage of the past. So. Is that
1: what you're talking about earlier when you're saying it'll probably get down to zero with the cold starts if they if they switch runtimes?
0: No. Well, this is just the runtime cold start. I think at a certain point, Amazon's going to crack the nut of of booting VMs, like the whole thing that it, the not just the runtime but the thing running the runtime. Yeah. Uh, I think they're going to drop that to zero. Um, right now, the overhead of booting a Firecracker container is somewhere around forty milliseconds, and then. You know, a node or a deno on a hot day, you know, running running in peak performance mode might, might be able to cold start itself around the same amount of time. So you're still seeing a latency of around 80, 70 milliseconds. Um, and I, I expect the deno part to drop to zero and I expect the operating system part from Amazon to drop to zero. It's just a matter of time. And, yeah, I don't know. I mean... You might have a use case where that matters. I don't know who does, but like, like we have to get rid of that last twenty milliseconds. Is probably you know, at massive, massive scale, huge workloads. Maybe that's going to make a difference in your bill. I don't know, but uh, we're we're fast approaching um, zero cost abstraction cloud computing.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to it, being the consumer of all this uh, all this win. and um, yes. <laughs> Also, I'm looking forward to continuing consuming Begin uh, and seeing what you all have in store as well. So, Thanks so much, Brian. Listeners, definitely check out begin.com. They put a lot of work into getting that URL, so don't forget it. <laughs> and uh, also, keep spreading the jam. That's all the time we have for today. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, find us on Twitter at Jamstack Radio.